never say die! Fourteen. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 203 of 40 Going On 14. I am Mike. I am Patrick. I'm Joel. And I'm Josh, and watching Trainspotting this week reminds me that I'm, in a few weeks I'll be heading to the UK, and I'm pretty sure I can personally knock the worst toilet in Scotland down to second place. <laughs> Everyone's got to have goals. I thought you were going to try and get some heroin. Ooh. Yeah. Dead baby. Aw. All right. So if that didn't let you know what we're talking about this week. <laughs> dead we are, babies. Yes, yeah, not dead baby. babies. <laughs> dead babies and heroin. Um, we are we're talking about uh, train spotting. Thank you for moving on. I didn't want to go into it. If you like <laughs> dead babies and heroin. <laughs> <laughs> this show is for you. Oh, you no. are on the right track. Uh, no, uh, the 1996 release. Um, this should be a pretty interesting show because for some of us, it was a first watching. No, uh, for some of Mike. Is... Well, I was trying to make it a little bit more ambiguous than that, but <laughs> first time I've seen it. So, If you like ambiguity, uh, ah, check out the shows on the Podcast Collective. Or maybe you shouldn't. Whatever. Your choice. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to, though, you have such shows to choose from as On the Block. Joel's own The Sunshine Happy Pants Hour. The Internet with Scott the Pool Boy. Mint Inbox Cast, and of course, the Red Dad Radio Hour. Oh, they do have a new show, The Dead Baby Heroin Hour. <laughs> <laughs> Joel just recorded it while you were doing the intro. Yep, it's already up. It's got three likes already on Podchaser. Uh, yep. Yeah, so if you're looking at our older stuff, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, and every other uh, podcasting network out there it seems like but uh, podverse fm noon fm and find us on Podchaser. review us let people know about us we appreciate it what's a pod chaser he said it's the the race in the first phantom menace star wars movie where they chase pot chase potter pod. good lord this Look is when like i the- wish i had michael mcdonald queued up <laughs> Why does it sound like you're getting off on saying that? <laughs> I just lost steam because I realized this joke is going nowhere. I love Jar Jar. So if you love Jar Jar, you should give us a call. <laughs> 708 now rap. 708 669 9727. No one will tell me what Podchaser is. Podchaser is <laughs> the IMDb of podcasting. <laughs> That's what I was looking for. I know. I, for some reason, I thought Patrick was going to go down that alley, but uh, unfortunately... Oh, no. God, no. Come on. But, <laughs> if, there, if there's one overriding theme, it's I don't help. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah, well, it's not like we haven't known that for years. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Podchaser, go on there. IMDB, if you are looking to get into the beta, uh, you can get in there with 40 Go 14, or there was another one. What was the other one? Nostalgia 40, I think, works as well. Yep. And uh, you can get in there and rate some podcasts, give us a rating, uh, and see other podcasts that are similar to ours. So you can get a nice little, uh, if you like us, you may like the Dead Baby and Heroin podcast. <laughs> oh, second episode just went up. <laughs> Where are we going to be uh, here coming up very, very soon after the show? Is that uh, We are going to be in Indianapolis running amok. <laughs> amok, 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 amok. 
Yeah, we will be appearing at Gen Con as we do annually as the hosts of the Instant Game Show. Yes. And uh, I'll even be there this year. Yeah, Patrick's going to be there. Everybody. In fact, we have a whole cadre of people. I, like I, 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 want, I want to refer to them as, a, as an entourage. I was thinking entourage. <clears throat> an entourage. You get to meet prize guy Brian, who's known for saying, Get your hand off my butt. Uh, yeah, that nothing. Yes. <laughs> you also get to meet my long-suffering wife, Sarah. Yes, and Jay, who we've mentioned. Not that long. <laughs> he has been suffering. Yeah, definitely suffering. But... You get to meet Jay and his hopefully his new invention. Oh man, this could this could either go the way of Doc Brown's inventions or well, Doc Brown's inventions and a special yeah. surprise guest that you'll have to be there to see. Indeed. Our, our resident Samoan. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, I wasn't talking about him, but yeah. He was talking about our special mascot. Oh, that's oh, right. Oh, yeah. But our Good resident idea. Samoan will be there, too. Yes. Look at this. Look at this. The, the surprise will either be incredibly awesome or set Joel's head on fire. Literally. We have that's the only two ways. I was talking about the other surprise guest, but oh, yeah, that too. Joel, Joel may have to put fire retardant gel on his head before you... <laughs> it's good policy anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's really... It's like sunblock, fire retardant gel. I mean, that should probably be an everyday thing for everybody. So, yeah, the 50th anniversary of Gen Con. Sold out. Yeah, so we will be there. Hopefully you will be there, too, and you'll find us doing game show and uh, giving away prizes. Yeah. You see a large Samoan man parting the way for a giant wooden cart and a bunch of retards running around with it? That's gonna, that's gonna be us. <laughs> and look you for us that they might be giants. Yeah, who probably won't be hanging out with us. I'm just gonna oh, go out with them. But yeah. you never know. It's we've had stranger weeks. I was gonna Girl. say, yeah. I think it's about that time. It is totally about that time. <clears throat> this week in music, movies, and TV. And sports. All right. So, <clears throat> 1996, August 9th was the release of Train Spotting. Um, so, there we go. Head straight Thanks to music. One of our more current things. I know, right? Yeah, totally. All right. Music. The top songs in the land are Hey, Macarena by De Los Rios and the acronym of the week YMMH LIF. That's, of course, your mother's memories have lasers in front. <laughs> pew, pew, pew. Not surprisingly, that was a Japanese-made movie. Holy but Who knew Tony Braxton did the theme song for it? That explains <laughs> all my breastfeeding issues. Aww. <laughs> and the burning sensation in the yeah. back of your throat. I always have to set fire to my mouth before I can eat anything. That, that explains a lot. This is actually uh, Pat's theme song, You're Making Me High, Let It Flow, by Tony Braxton. <laughs> Along with How Do You Want It, California Love, by Tupac, with Casey and JoJo. I don't think I've ever heard of this Tony Braxton song. I'm only familiar with one Tony Braxton song. And that one is? Unbreak My Heart, which is a dumb title, which is the main reason I remember it. Because you can't unbreak title. something. It's not a word. <laughs> glue, dude. It's called Fix, but Fix My Heart doesn't really set, have the, the flow. <laughs> uh, Mel Taylor was a longtime drummer for The Ventures from 1962 hey, to 1996. Yeah, it doesn't work. Sorry. He was the older brother of Canned Heat bassist Larry Taylor. 
After drumming with Boris Pickett and Herb Alpert, Taylor joined the Ventures in 1962 to fill in for Howie Johnson, who had been severely injured in an automobile accident. On August 11th, two weeks after his cancer diagnosis, he played his last rim shot. Yikes. Absorbed! I was only half listening, and it sounded like you said he joined the Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. On August 6th, the Ramones played their last show at the Palace in Hollywood. Right after a uh, Lollapalooza show. They wouldn't, play, they wouldn't play that show, and they're like, all right, fuck this, we're done. Huh. On August 11th, the British rock band Oasis played the biggest freestanding concert in UK history at Nebworth, Hertfordshire. No, I think the N is silent. It's Kebworth. Nebworth. Nebworth. I think it is Nebworth. I'm, I was just being stupid. Oasis sucks. Yeah. I'm going to get some hate mail on that one. Mainly from Liam. I was going to say, Liam or Noel, take your pick. <laughs> Just sitting around, hate listening to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure to tag Oasis in this so they can hear it. Anyway, here's Wonderwall. After the dead baby heroin hour, we should check out this 40 going on for What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> Liam, get my pen. I don't know why they write letters still, but it's funnier. That's it for music. On to <laughs> movies. Movies released this week include Escape from L.A., a sci-fi B-movie romp, Jack, a a comedic romp, and Basquiat, an artistic romp. I've still never heard of it. I mean, I've heard of it now, but I mean, not until... Yeah, you need to see it just to see David Bowie playing uh, Andy Warhol. I would concur. I have heard that that is a great great cameo. I I think I read it in in a Cracked article or something talking about, like, rock stars that weren't good in the movies they were in or something. Huh. All right. Yep. In addition I, to <laughs> In addition to Jack, which opened at number one in the box office, top films this week were A Time to Kill at number two and Independence Day at number three. Yeah, Independence Day. Yeah. I saw that I saw that opening night at Disney World. I was gonna say the only one of those three movies I don't like is Jack. Yeah, Jack was okay. It just it was a little too schmaltzy. Yeah. Well, yeah, progeria of well, their take on progeria is funny, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you can manage to look like a grown man instead of an alien. Nanu Nanu? Oh, you brought it back around. All right. Charles McGregor was an African American actor best known for his role as Fat Freddy and Superfly. But we know him best as Sheriff Bart's best friend Charlie in Blazing Saddles. In his youth, he spent a number of years in prison, and during the 1970s, he became an actor and played supporting roles in several black exploitation films. After his film career, he toured the United States and went to junior high and high schools, counseling children on the danger of crimes, drug, and prison. He died of... Patrick, stop changing the show notes. Uh, well, I had August- to put a word in there because it just said he died of on... <laughs> He died on August 11th, 1996. Oh, boo. Absorbed. And well hung. (laughs) There you go, Pat. Thank you. All right. So TV, uh, WWE, Raw, and Family Guy are the two top shows in the land, which speaks volumes. (laughs) What the hell was going on with television at the time? Um. 
yeah, I got there's really much the joke right itself right there. Really. Yeah, there's not a whole lot you got to add to that one. Yeah. So uh, August 6th sees the publishing of George R.R. R. Martin's fantasy epic novel, A Game of Thrones, the first in his series, A Song of Ice and Fire. This series will go on to be made into one of the greatest television series of all time. Yeah, unfortunately, they uh, completed a hell of a lot of it in the intervening 20-odd years. Yep. <clears throat> I don't. I. I'm kind of at this point really starting to think that the winds of winter is just not going to happen. Aw, just wait for December, Pat. It'll come. Not in Texas, but it'll come. Winter is coming. Stop. I drink that. wine and I know things. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. So TV shows that premiered this week include Arliss which is written with two dollar signs. Seriously? That's how the show title was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Uh, the Big Easy and Fox After Breakfast, followed by the show Squirrel After Lunch. <laughs> Who the fuck added that? That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> wow. That's a Joel joke. <laughs> right? It just came to me as I was typing it, Fox After Breakfast. I was like, <laughs> Arliss. Arliss Michaels is not a sports agent. He is a sports super agent. To his athletes and the world around him, he is a god. He is like Jerry Maguire, but without a conscience. Was on for seven seasons. Mm-hmm. Holy yeah, Robert Wall is awesome. <clears throat> yeah, he is. He, he is. But that's one of those shows like Jag where, you know, every, you know it's, it has great numbers, but nobody knows anybody that watches it. Oh, that's right. Alexander Knox from Batman. Mm-hmm. And something else called Assume the Position. What? It's like a little mini history lesson type show he does. Oh. Oh, I thought that was the Pat, like, autobiography of Pets. The title of Pets Autobiography. God damn it! <laughs> the title oh. of Pets Autobiography. There we go. Should have stuck with Titsling. Titsling. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to sports. On August 5th, the Kansas City Chiefs beat the Dallas Cowboys 32-6. to at the Estadio Universitario near Monterrey, Mexico, as part of the American Bowl, a series of National Football League preseason exhibition games that were played all over the world, starting in 1986 and ending in 2005. The game That's a long played- game of football. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Even longer than cricket. That's how the, st- the score got so high. <laughs> uh, the games were played primarily to promote American football in other countries. Obviously. Hmm. I kind of vaguely remember this. Haha, ha, Kansas City beat Texas. <laughs> well, it was pretty much like the second and third string guys, so it didn't really matter. Ha, and, ha. They, and they were in Mexico, so there was the unbridled Texan rage going on, too. True. Well, we, were, we were too busy being riled up about all the Mexicans. Remember the Alamo. <laughs> Except for Pat. Who's Why there's got to be so damn many Mexicans here in Mexico? <laughs> it's in the basement. <laughs> That, my favorite part of that entire movie is when he sticks his head out the the uh, telephone booth, gets everybody to sing "Deep in the Heart of Texas." So good. But anyway, moving on. Leonard John Caldwell was an English cricketer who played in seven Tests for England from 1962 to 1964. Caldwell was a right-arm fast medium bowler who was, for a few years in the early to mid 1960s, half of a respected and feared new ball partnership with his bowling partner Jack Flavel. You guys remember Coldwell Flavel? They opened up an ice cream store after they were re- retired. No, okay, never mind. Sorry. Coldwell was the attacking force behind the unprecedented success of Worcestershire 
<laughs> we brought the county, the county, Worcestershire, Worcestershire, sure. We brought the county its first successes in the county championship in 1964 and 1965. In 1961, Coldwell took 140 wickets and finished sixth in the national averages. The following year, his best, he took 152 wickets and finished fourth. Coldwell, however, was not much of a batsman. In 15 years of first-class cricket, he failed to reach 40 runs in any innings. He died in Teganmouth, Devon, in on August 6, 1996, at the age of 63. Absorbed. <laughs> he was. Joel Osteen works a lot around here. Dude. Uh, That's the tweet. Down. He gets paid on commission. Insert witty comment here. <laughs> uh, little comment. Something about cricket. Um, okay, so train spot. Uh, then train. This is the then train spotting in 1996 British comedy drama directed by Danny Boyle, starring Ewan McGregor, Ewan Bremer, Johnny Lee Miller, Kevin McKidd, Robert Carlyle, and Kelly McDonald in her acting debut. Wow. Based on the novel of the same name by Irvin Welsh, it was released in the UK um, 23rd of February 1996. It was nominated in Academy Award by Hot. Uh, I'm sorry, excuse me. It was nominated for an Academy 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 <laughs> Tale, Academy Egg. The Academy oh. Award nominated screenplay by John Hodge follows a group of heroin addicts in an economically depressed area of Edinburgh and their passage through life. Beyond yes. drug addiction, other themes in the film are explored. What? Who wrote this? You we did. Continue? I didn't write this. Don't blame me. Beyond drug addiction, other themes in the film are exploration of urban of the urban poverty and squalor in culturally rich Edinburgh. Okay, I guess it kind of makes sense. I was like, you don't like it, just edit the Wikipedia, because that's where I cut and pasted that from. Don't get snarky. Wiki, wiki. Re- research. That's us, folks. All right, so this film has been ranked number 10 by the British Film Institute as a, in a list of top 100 British films of all time. In 2004, the film was voted the best Scottish film of all time in a general public poll. <laughs> That's a very, very short list, though. A general public poll. It's like one dude out there. Hey, <laughs> your favorite movie? Yeah, what's your favorite movie about Scotland? Uh, what with all the heroin? <laughs> with the heroin and the baby. Train spotting. <laughs> what's right, your podcast? A dead baby. <laughs> We got a spinoff podcast. <laughs> no, we don't. Oh, episode just went up. <laughs> All right, so uh, a sequel, Train Spotting. Already two, got an advertiser. <laughs> he too was released on the twenty seventh of January two thousand and seventeen. Wow, that was a lot closer than I thought. I thought it was later than that. I thought it was two thousand sixteen. But so this st- stars a one Ewan McGregor. If you don't know who that is. You're listening to the wrong podcast. Um, yeah, probably. Uh, young Obi-Wan. Young Obi-Wan. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorite roles for him is Ed Bloom in Big Fish. Oh, um, yeah. Great film. Yeah, Moulin Rouge. Yeah, he's he's like, Moulin Rouge. And he's yeah. an attractive gentleman. Yes. He was fantastic in Moulin Rouge. we got to figure out a reason to watch that. Um, a handsome young man. <laughs> and he's got a decent singing voice, too. But a dwarf dressed as a nun walks in. Uh, Ewan, Bre- Ewan Bremer. 
Yeah, uh, he's probably best known to our audiences now as the sniper from the new Wonder Woman movie. Oh, that's right. Spoilers. I still haven't seen it. Oh, you really yeah. should. Oh, I plan to. I've heard really good things. I relate to him in this film. <laughs> as a dragon, I can see that. I can definitely... <laughs> as a character. I was thinking where we're going to go along with these, because I'm like, oh, there's four of them. Um, he also plays uh, Sherlock Holmes in an episode of a TV show called Houdini and Doyle, which I kind of want to find. But he was also in uh, Exodus, Gods and Kings, and now is currently working on a, sh- a movie called Renegades. So, along with that, Johnny Lee Miller as Sick Boy. Another handsome lad. Boys like Johnny Lee Miller. Yeah. It's a you shame may- I don't like elementary. I was going to say, there's another Sherlock Holmes tie. Sorry, Sherlock Holmes tie. Oh, neat. Uh, also known for Hackers. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Very nice. And uh, Dark Shadows, kind of, I guess. Yeah, eventually, when we're scraping the bottom of the barrel, we'll get to that show. <laughs> Uh, but more, a little bit better TV. Uh, we've got him as uh, Dex um, in De- Dexter as Jordan Chase. Yep, a bunch of episodes of that one. A lot of TV for him. Yeah, he, uh, he played a lawyer in one show I watched for a while, but it wasn't that good. Yes, but who can forget him in Oh yeah, Dracula two thousand and Simon Shepard. God, Dracula two thousand. What the hell? Yeah, why'd they make nine nineteen hundred ninety nine of them? <laughs> Fifth episode released. All right, so Tommy, <laughs> played by Kevin McKidd. Yeah, Kevin McKidd, uh, like, I did not recognize him young. Uh, if you ever watched the TV series Rome on HBO, uh, he's one of the mainstays. He also was on uh, Grey's Anatomy for like 11 years or something. Yeah, he was on oh, it for a long he play, time. He played, uh, oh my God, he did, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was. I watched the first season of Rome. So. Until he died of AIDS, but yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah, Sarah had never seen Train Spotting and uh, didn't want to watch it, but she kind of wandered through while I was rewatching it, and she's like, "Holy crap, that's Kevin McKidd!" It's like, "How do you know Kevin McKidd?" <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, also in Kevin McKidd, he does the voice of Lord MacGuffin in Brave. He actually has a uh, quite a bit of uh, voiceover uh, acting, also. So he's done uh, voices for. Um, Boonraku. Uh he that's not something. I don't want to bring that one up. But Star Wars Rebels, he plays uh Fen Rao. If you've watched that show, which is actually Star Wars Rebels is actually pretty dang good. <clears throat> After that, we also have Begbie, played by Robert Carlyle. If you don't know Robert Carlyle, just imagine him as a zombie. Or as Rumpelstiltskin. Or as eating trying to eat his cohorts. Ravenous. Oh, that's right. Or naked. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's the one my, uh, after, after I had my double hernia surgery, I was stuck in my parents' house for a while. My mom went out and got me movies and that wonderful relationship that we have. She got the full Monty for me. That is not a movie to be watching while you're recovering from abdominal surgery. (laughs) No, not at all. Oh, I laughed so hard in that movie. That was fantastic. I watched that show or that movie over at Dean and Gretchen's of all places. Weird. Yeah. yeah, and would Pat be the Begbie? Would that be his analog? I think show? he'd be Beg Begbie. Pat would be Begbie. I would think so. <laughs> Mike was all prepared to be Begbie with the anger issues. <laughs> oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought... I, I'd call. I'd call oh, Mike yeah. as Renton and myself as Sick Boy. 
See, I saw Pat more. Well, you know, let's leave this to the end. Let's leave this to the <laughs> end. Friend there. Uh, Kelly I thought McDonald. I was more of a Diane. Yes, you are. You will be. Um, uh, Diane, uh, also known as Helena Ravenclaw. Uh, she was, I'm sorry, Kelly McDonald playing Helena Ravenclaw in uh, one of the Harry Potter movies and another crossover in Brave. She does the voice of Merida. Oh, and she's so cute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this that was her funny. film debut. Yeah. Uh, also, No Country for Old Men. Nice. Uh, how, how far are we going here? Peter Mullen, Swanee? Is Swanee Mother Superior? I think I, so. I think so, yeah. Hold um, on. Yes. That's the only thing that makes sense. <laughs> yes, it's Mother Superior. Yeah, he has been in Braveheart and Warhorse. Yeah. Uh, and then we have other. Oh, let's see. Anybody else we need to talk about? In prob- well, I, James Cosmo has been a character actor in British stuff like for a long time. Yes, that's true. Uh, oh, that's right. He played Father Christmas in the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm-hmm. So did I. You ladies, yeah. you. <laughs> and uh, jumping down to the bottom here, because she appears in the sequel, uh, Shirley Henderson uh, plays Gail, uh, Spud's girlfriend. Oh, his poor family. Oh, uh, poor family. oh my gosh. That's Moaning Myrtle. Mm-hmm. Neat. Oh. There are, like, Harry Potter crossovers all over the place. <laughs> Harry Potter and Brave. Well, it's a British movie, of course. True. They only have 12 actors, but a thousand costumes. So, <laughs> All right, so some trivia. Danny Boyle used creative methods while directing and necessitated by the film's low budget. For example, in the scene where Renton shoots a dog with a BB gun and then goes crazy and attacks its owner, Boyle got the dog to freak out simply by positioning himself just outside of camera range and screaming at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever works. Exactly. Can they see me? No? We'll fix it in post. Um, Ewan McGregor read books about crack and heroin to prepare for the role. He also went on to Glasgow and met people from the Carlton Athletic Recovery Group, an organization of recovering heroin addicts. He was taught how to cook up heroin with a spoon using glucose powder. McGregor considered injecting heroin to better understand the character, but eventually decided against it after he finished reading the script. (laughs) Wow, that's method acting. Yeah. Or methadone acting. Ah, 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 episode ah. six is on the way. <laughs> I All right, so. episode three on purpose, Tommy, if you're listening. Uh, Kelly McDonald got the part when the production crew were handing out flyers across Glasgow. For anyone eager to audition, when Danny Boyle first laid eyes on her in a corridor with a plain hairdo surrounded by many glamorous girls, he knew she was the one. He wanted someone unknown, so no one would guess that a 19-year-old girl was playing a schoolgirl. That's <laughs> McDonald still has a promotional flyer at home. He just wanted to see her naked. Mm. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, good, good for him. Good, good job, buddy. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Daddy Boy. And for a schoolgirl outfit. Both. 28 days later and for... Oh, never mind. And as for the close-up shots of Ewan McGregor injecting himself with heroin, a prosthetic arm was constructed by the makeup department, complete with pulsing veins, Mm. smack tracks, and small pockets of blood that would appear when the skin was punctured by a hypodermic needle. And yet he's just off camera screaming at a dog to save money. Yeah, you'd think it'd be cheaper to just rent a homeless person. Right? (laughs) Pay pay a heroin addict in heroin and just film his arm. And although it looks thoroughly off-putting, the feces in the worst toilet in Scotland scene was actually made from chocolate and smelled quite pleasant. 
Ewan McGregor went on to have a chocolate feces fetish after making this movie. <laughs> you rather have poop-flavored chocolate or chocolate-flavored poop? That is a question for the ages. He considered injecting feces for the part, but decided <laughs> against it. <laughs> Look, and in- Ewan, Ewan, you're going too far down the alley, man. Bring it back. <laughs> All right, so I am the only one of you of the four of us that have never seen this movie up until now. Well, I think the three of us all saw it together originally, right? Yeah, I think we saw it in the theater. I know we saw it in the theater, yeah. I I may have, I'm not sure. I know I've seen it so many times, I don't remember the first time I saw it. I I do remember seeing it in the theater with Josh. I just didn't know if if Pat was there or not. Yeah, I may not not have been there, I'm not sure. I know we went and saw Leaving Las Vegas together, but I wasn't sure about this. I I don't distinctly remember it, so probably not. I probably wasn't there. All right. <laughs> and that's the show, folks. We'll see you next week. But I have uh, seen this movie, yeah, about a dozen times. Why? I really like it. I don't I don't know what it is about it that uh appeals to me, but I just I really like this movie. I think it could it's just so dark. Yeah, it works as a drama, it works as a comedy, and the soundtrack is fucking incredible. Yeah, I love the soundtrack. Oh my it god. It also works as a bit of a uh a, not necessarily life affirming, but I mean, I guess that's one way to look at it. Cautionary tale. Yeah. I mean, even though he uses that, you know, choose life speech as, you know, almost something as a negative, um, as a joke that they kind of explain in the sequel. But at the end, when he walks away, he's just made that decision. You know, he's decided to kick for good. He took the money. and Yeah, but uh, do you actually believe him when he says that? that I'm going to change my ways. I'm not going to be a bad person anymore. Like, if you don't know there's a sequel, I think that the impression is maybe he believes what he's saying, but the audience shouldn't. I always assumed that he he would end up going back to his old ways. Absolutely. I I always saw it the other way. I always saw that ending as, as that was his chance to break away. And, and I thought leaving the money for, um, Spud was kind of a way to affirm that point that, or confirm that point that he had moved on and was doing the right thing now. Yeah, I That's mean, I, I I definitely believe that he believed himself at that point, but I've known too many addicts for of of all different stripes to to believe any addict when they say they're done forever because it's just, it's a constant life battle. Well, I mean, because anyone for. That was actually the opening scene. I mean, you think about it. That was him trying to, uh, that's it. I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And that's what led us into meeting him. Yeah, he quits twice and then falls back into his old habits. And the fact is, is as much as we like watching him, Rent is not a nice person. Nobody in this movie is a nice person. Well, Spud's the closest. Sp- yeah, yeah, Sp- yeah, Spud's kind of just a fuck up. Yeah. Well, technically, Tommy's the nicest one until he gets on crack, smack, heroin, smack, smack. Give crack. a dog a bone. <laughs> but I would say Tommy is the nicest one because he's not even you know a thief or an addict at the, at the beginning. <laughs> Tommy shoots smack, and I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a quality podcast, and people are looking for right there. Um, <laughs> No, uh, Tommy. Tommy was tragic. I mean that. Yeah. That's it. I mean, he's a counteraction, the the counter to all these guys who have been doing heroin for so long, almost without without issue. I'm going to say without issue, without uh, consequence. 
Yeah, and Rent fucks up his life. Yeah, Rent. Like, I mean, it, from the beginning. Yeah, and it's just like push him over right over the cliff. I mean, and it, and the thing that gets me is it all springs from Rent just stealing that VHS tape. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? And, that, that, and that's more evidence to the fact that you know Josh was talking about Renton is not a good person. No, no, he isn't. I mean, and it's and it's. This I mean, isn't. If I um, found a sex tape of you and Susie, you know, I would watch it, but I wouldn't steal it. That's just rude. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't laugh at that. <laughs> and that's the thing is, even if you do that to a friend because you're young and you're stupid, once you see it start to fuck up their life, you don't protect yourself. You fucking tell them, "Hey, uh, tell Liz that was me. I stole it. We've been um, watching it. I'm a piece of shit, but you know, you shouldn't suffer for it." Yeah, yeah. She still might not take him back, but he probably gets mad at Rent and doesn't do heroin and doesn't die of AIDS. If Mark just like mans up and says, "This is what I did to you," but again, not mm-hmm. a good person. This is this is not a, how the best way to put it. When I was I was talking to somebody about this at work, these are not good people. This is a good movie about bad people. Well, yeah. yeah, my favorite character to watch is completely the worst person in the movie. I fucking love Bigby. Oh my god, yeah, he's a he's a yeah. train wreck. Bigby, uh, Bigby was a train wreck, and I literally, I mean, I can't say that I have hated a character more than I hated Bigby in this movie until I saw the second one. But Robert Carlyle nailed him. Just he decides he wants to fight, so he throws a glass over his shoulder and busts it over somebody's head. That was, well, that I mean, for an intro for him, and none of you constantly. Yeah. That's the be- that's the best part. He comes down like like we're gonna find out who did that, and he just starts fighting. <laughs> to find the kunt who did it. I won't lie. I had to watch this with the subtitles on. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad idea if you've never seen it before. Well, shit. Yeah. You should, if you think that movie's bad, you should read the book. The book is almost like phonetically written in Scottish. Yeah, oh, I wow. was about to say, uh, you've read it, right? Yes. So tell us a little bit. I mean, besides the fact that it's phonetically written in Scottish, which we'll get to when we talk about T2. Uh, I read it back in high school. So, I mean, I, all I remember is I really liked it, but it took about a good chapter before it really. It was kind of like watching the, um, the Mel Gibson version of Hamlet, where, you know, after it takes a little while, but then suddenly it clicks, like, like, like Antonio Banderas in the 13th Warrior. There's just this moment where suddenly you're like, oh, shit, I'm understanding everything that's going on here. And when you're reading along, you know, it's like you have to struggle, struggle, struggle. And then suddenly it just starts flowing. Like Shakespeare. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, it's just it's a really well-written book. But, I mean, the chapters are incredibly short. It's very disjointed because it's written from, you know, like a heroin user's perspective. And it's, it's just, I mean, it's it's one of the most interesting books I've ever read as far as just stylistically. Yeah, and this is one where people talking about the book versus the movie, usually there's a clear consensus on which was better. I could find no consensus whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I I liked I liked them both very very much. I mean, I I think this is a is a really good adaptation of the book. Very nice. I may have to read that. Definitely sounds something something to keep my mind occupied when I'm on. <laughs> when I'm on but I'm on my way to the lifestyle that he tears down in the first three minutes of the movie. <laughs> it's like books or heroin. Hmm. 
Ewan McGregor was going to actually inject the book, but they uh, decided <laughs> against it. So, as the guy who you don't, you don't have matching luggage, Mike, you're fine. I don't think I have matching anything. That's what I'm saying. You're fine. You're, he wasn't talking about you. Oh, none, none of your shit matches. <laughs> well, good, I guess. Um, as a guy who saw this for the first time, I I heard you guys talking about it. I never knew what the big deal was. I never took time to watch it. Holy shit, was I wrong. Um, this was so good. We were still talking about it the next morning. Uh, I I really, like I said, this is not this is a good movie about terrible people. And you and Suzanne, you mean? Yeah, we watched it together. Um, but yeah, I mean the the thing is these these characters are not good people. They're not someone that you would want to associate with. They're not somebody. They're I mean when they're all just laying around the house when the baby dies and sick boy is crying and everything is going on. Um, it's terrible, but it couldn't tear my eyes away because I wanted to know what happens next to these guys. And of course, the next thing that happens is Mark decides it's time to take a hit, time to shoot yeah, up. That that was messed up. Um, this is this is actually you know what you know what all those all those schools that did, did uh, those dare programs. Fuck that! Just show this. Yeah, show, show kids this at Requiem for a Dream, and they'll never touch heroin. Oh yeah, <laughs> toss the full metal jacket in there too. They'll, they'll never come out of the basement. Um, but yeah, I I really regret not seeing this earlier. Oh, no reason you can't watch it again and again and again and again. Not too I'm, much because I'm, I'm glad you finally did watch it. Oh no, it, it it was it was fantastic. I mean, I I like Ewan McGregor. I mean, Robert Carlyle. My, <laughs> it's kind of funny because the the girls watch Once Upon a Time and he plays Rumpelstiltskin in there. So when I when I got brought the the DVD back, they're like, "Oh, hey, cool, check it out. That's Rumpelstiltskin." I'm like, "Yeah, no, you're not watching that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you are a fan of uh, Danny Boyle and Ewan McGregor, you should check out his first feature film, which Joel and I watched in the apartment, Shallow Grave. Oh, yeah, you yeah, you get also get bonus early Christopher Eccleston in that one. Oh, wow. Yeah, I watched. I watched that with you guys at the at the house. Yes, oh, that was the uh, movie I was watching when I determined that champagne and Taco Bell was a terrible combination. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think anybody needed to figure that out. Uh, <laughs> it was so bad; it's a crystal clear memory for me. <laughs> well, Mike, if you've not seen that one, you should definitely add it to your list of things that we've told you is good that you shouldn't put off. Right. So, shallow grave, heroin. <laughs> And dead babies. Dead babies. <laughs> episode seven is out, by the way. You should check it out. It's a double episode. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it's not. Now, um, what about what? What draws you to this movie so much? Like, I know Pat. Just Pat already asked him. Now, Josh, you know, this, you said this is one of your top movies, also. I mean, in addition to the uh, skill made in the filmmaking and the way it's paired with the music, a lot of the most powerful moments for me are the conversation moments. Not necessarily even the big speeches about life or whatever, like just sick boy and Rent sitting with the BB gun talking about James Bond. <laughs> uh, that was great. No, I mean, that, and that's what it won the uh, Academy Award for, correct? For the script, the script writing? Yes. Adapted screenplay, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So, but no, I mean, it's the, the banter, the dialogue, the exchange between everybody, even down to, um, you know, conversations between uh, Renton and Diane. Yeah. You humanize these characters that in a lot of other, even if it's about addicts, they're almost caricatures and we get to see them as people and as friends and what their daily life is like. It, It fills that same sort of spot for me is like clerks does with those real conversations. Well, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's a movie about drug users that isn't just about drugs. Right. Well, <laughs> and the other thing about it is, is that you've got all these characters that are very distinct and they're very well written and very, uh, they're very fleshed out. Even though you may not know their entire history, you know them just by their actions, by their words and even the way they dress and, and what their proclivities are. I mean, Bigby doesn't do heroin, but yet, I mean, he smokes. And- he's got, he's got 12 empty pints in front of him though. Right. He's got other vices. And, and even though Tommy may not be uh, a bad person, he's still got his hangups and things too. And um, it's, it's just interesting to watch all of them and how they interact coming from different backgrounds and, and I mean, Mark tries to quit and what happens? The other guys, one guy quits, uh, I, I'm trying to sick boy quits just out of spite. And then they all kind of drag him back down with the whole process of the big score. Mm-hmm. And that you was, know. and that several of the, several of the points where, you know, they catch the big score. Renton hasn't shot up in a while. Oh man. Of course he's got to try it. You know, he's got to try it. You know, he was so always, it seems like he was always towing the line to just about getting out and then getting drugged back. You know, he's out, uh, you know, he's selling apartments now. And then uh, Bigby shows up at his front door. Of course, once yeah. Bigby shows up, then Sick Boy shows up. You know, it's, it's, it was almost kind of tragic seeing um, Renton attempting to get out of this circle over and over and over again just to have the just situation drag him back in. But it, I mean that that is one of the realistic things about this movie is, you know, in in that kind of a lifestyle, like every, whenever you try to get out, other people will resent you and they want to just pull you right back down. See, yeah, and, and his unhealthy relationships with his shitty friends are almost a bigger downfall than his relationship with drugs. And see, that's my my point again about him being a good character, and and at the end, me feeling that that's his change to get away from that, to be, have a positive turnaround is that he's realized that these people are continually dragging him down. And the only way to do it is to make a clean break. And he sees the money as a clean break. And you look at his time when he quit, they brought him back down to that. And he was, he was doing pretty well. He was on his own and then Bigby shows up and shit just goes South. And, and again, I think it was the drugs that was more making the bad decisions than it was him as a person. That's my take on it. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know that I agree because he's not high on heroin when he decides to betray his friends who are the reason why he keeps, or at least they're the excuse he gives for why he keeps falling back into his old habits and repeating. And granted, mine and Pat's side of the argument is emboldened by the fact that there's a sequel. This specifically talks about falling back into old patterns and repeating past mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, but when we get to that, I sure to back up my side of that. But I think that he took the money as he took it as a way of getting out. It wasn't 
he's his friends were dragging him down and he couldn't take spud with him so he used that as a clean break to get a start over and get away from that lifestyle and i mean even the this the scene where he takes heroin after the the baby dies he's doing it i think i mean granted the line about you know i go first is a little shitty but i mean what else are you going to do when you're a drug addict and something horrible happens well you're going to do something to take the pain away yeah well, and he's got other motivations when it comes to the ending, stealing the money. Uh, he's convinced that Bigby is just out of control and might at any point just decide he's keeping all of it himself at knife point. Well, uh, and that, he, he kind of goes over that while they're sitting in the pub and he turns to Spud and he's like, what do you think? You know, Right, because one of the other two would do the same to them. Yeah, yeah. and that, and that's exactly it. I mean, he's, you, you, you know, the, the conversation he has later is you know sick boy is mad because he didn't think of it first and he's probably right god sick boy i mean i all the characters i'm like again it's not i didn't like anything of the characters but at the same time i i didn't like them but i cared about what was happening next to them which sounds totally opposite of what it should be well i think it has to do with the the charisma of the actors and their committal to the role oh yeah Again, with them being very well-rounded, well-written characters, you put four very competent actors that have a lot of charisma. Well, five if you include Tommy. I mean, you you can't help but take your eyes off the screen. Plus, it's it's a fascinating look into a life that you're never going to know. So, well, Mm -hmm. plus Danny Boyle's a hell of a filmmaker, and and his pacing and his storytelling all carries you along at a very kinetic kind of pace. His use of color and framing shots, too. This is something that I don't usually notice, but it's especially good in these two films. He The, the cinematics in this one were, were fantastic. They, he did a great job of drawing your eye to both. I mean, like in the situations where things bad things were happening, he did do a lot of those pan out where the characters became very small. Yeah, and the yeah. landscapes were beautiful, too. You, you know, especially oh, yeah. The, they talk bad about Scotland. You know, the, the cinematography was beautiful. So, and then you've got the whole sequence where Mark, uh, basically what is it? I guess he's ODing when he falls down into the, 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 the grave with the carpet. Yeah. Because he's taken three uh, hits of methadone or uh, is it methadone? Yeah. Yeah. Already. And then he uh, shoots up. Right. Yeah, he ODs. Yeah. That's, that's I mean, a recipe. <laughs> and that whole sequence is just, there's so much going on with it, but it's so simple, but it's there's layers upon layers there. And you get just a little sense that uh, Mother Superior, or as we know, his name is Swanee, is <laughs> actually in some ways a little bit better person than the addicts he treats, because when he sees that he's just about killed rent, he puts his money back in his pocket. Mm-hmm. Granted, the cab driver immediately steals it because cabbies are pieces of shit. I mean, it could have been, I mean, I also at some points looked at it as him saying, I'm not going to be held responsible for selling you the wheat, the, the heroin that killed you. So here's your money back. Right. I just thought as here's cab fare. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what it I could, thought it was. And it could be the other, that, that it could exactly be it. That money could be specifically for the cabbie that he's got to set up arrangement with, that there will always be money in one of their pockets for you. It well, could I'm, be. It just looked like it was the exact same note he handed. But I mean, yeah. at that point, I mean, you, why wouldn't you? You just use the same note. I mean, you, you're not going to keep it anyway. You know? Right. In his pocket. What's the difference? You know, what's the difference in whether it's coming from his pocket or your pocket at that point? So yeah. So that um, 
just great stuff. I, I wish I could say more about it, but uh, I'm, I mean, saying more good things about it. But uh, one last thing that we had talked about, Josh and I talked about before this was the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, with, I, love, I, I love when they juxtaposition, you know, they, they would play like a really slow, sad, sweet song while something horrible is going on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like while, he's, while he's swimming through the nastiest toilet. Uh, what was the song that was playing? Uh, I, just, I, I just drew a blank. I'm not oh. a blank too. Uh, I, no, I, I got way down stuck in my head. I know that's not what it was, but that's what stuck in my head. Well, I'm thinking about is Lou Reed's uh, "Perfect Day." It wasn't "Perfect Day" then. No. Oh, yeah, "Perfect Day" was yeah. That was another a good use of a song. When, oh, uh, "Deep Blue Day." I've been listening to the soundtrack this week, and I I'm trying to blank now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to find it. Uh, I'm trying to look it up here on IMDb. Yeah, and Mike's right. It's "Deep Blue Day," Brian Eno. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah, and here here's here's my shame. I have owned the Train Spouting soundtrack for at least ten years. The- so I mean that's which I think is just kind of crazy that I've had the soundtrack but never took the time to watch the movie. Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, Elastica. I'm right there with you. Oh yeah, Blur. Um, I mean, for me, Brian Eno. I'm a big. I like him. Primal Scream. There's New Order in here also. Uh, and it's this actually, I would say ranks in the top ten for soundtracks for myself. Like this is this is up there with, um, in the in the same ten as uh, the Lost Boy soundtrack or Pulp Fiction. Yeah. yeah. What's that? Singles. Sorry, yeah. we're naming soundtracks. Yeah. So well, yeah, just the way. Because you'll find out later. Spoilers. Oh, yeah. A couple weeks. Right. Were you going to say, Josh? I was just going to say the way that they marry each of the various songs, even if they're really familiar stuff to you, like Lust for Life, to specific images in the film, just like give puts you in that like dirty, grimy, angry 1990s place. And this mm-hmm. is one of my favorite uh, movie opening scenes of all time, the opening to this movie. Just with you know, lust for life playing. They're running from the cops. You know, their stolen merchandise just flying, and they're just trying to get away. And Renton suddenly just you know runs into a car, and it just takes him completely out of the chase. And mm-hmm. he just starts laughing because he's high as shit. <laughs> Next thing yes. you know, arrested. Yeah, but the whole time and again you know, with his you know choose life speech is going on. It's just it's a great opening. And then the whole the whole thing goes full circle. Mm-hmm. So, good stuff. Uh, time to take a break. Yeah, I got to go do some heroin. Oh, and I've got to get episode seven uploaded soon. <laughs> this week you'll be interviewing the dead baby. Yeah. Yep. Well, he already <laughs> already interviewed Danny Boyle, so you know that was episode two. All right. So uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about T two train spotting from this year. Yes. We'll be back in just a little bit. Titsley. All right, we are back, and we are talking about T2, Train Spotting 2. Uh, this one came out 2017, again by Danny Boyle, uh, set in round Edinburgh in Scotland, uh, based on the characters created by Irving Welsh in the movie or the uh, novel Train Spotting and its follow-up Porno. 
It was released in the UK on the 27th of January 2017 and worldwide throughout February and March in the same year. Uh, this is a sequel to Boyle's 1996 Train Spotting, obviously, uh, which includes the entire ensemble cast, which I was really impressed with. Um, very self-referential and a lot of callbacks to the first film. And I'm grateful that I watched this the way that I did, which I watched Train Spotting on Monday and T2 on Wednesday because I think a lot of the things that happened in T2 I would not have understood. Right. Yeah, I watched Train Spotting on Monday and T2 on Tuesday. I yeah. watched them both today. <laughs> uh, same cast. Uh, I don't think we have anybody new, do we? Um, yeah. Really. No. Well, Veronica. you've got the uh, uh, Veronica. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Veronica was there. She was there. She's not on the list. She's really down far, down far on the cast list. Oh, wow. That's kind yeah, of I had to trim the cast list because all of the uh, little kids who played them as young uh, mm-hmm. were before Johnny Lee Miller. Oh, gee, it must it must be uh, as as you saw them then. Order of appearance, yeah. Order of appearance, yeah. Uh, let's see. Mm-hmm. One second, just so she gets credit here because she listens to the show. Yeah, I was gonna say she's gonna be pissed, and we're gonna get a call. Angela Nedialkova. Is was Veronica best known for her roles in nothing you've seen? She's gorgeous, though, and a competent actress. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, she was really good in this. Um, so Danny Boyle has credited David Bowie with helping to be able to use various hit songs in the original movie inexpensively because he had ties with Lou Reed and Iggy Pop and helped Boyle out because he was a fan of Shallow Grave. So, there you go. <laughs> so I want a great soundtrack. I'm going to call David Bowie. He loved my first movie. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of like Michael Jackson, I can't think of another person that you would you know you could be friends with. You know to get more move, get more songs in there. But uh, for his own little personal tribute to him following his death, Boyle decided to shoot a, mo- a moment where Renton goes through his record collection and finds a couple of Bowie's albums. In the books, uh, Renton is a fan of Bowie. Uh, while account- announcing the sequel in an interview, and director Danny Boyle joked that he wanted to call it T2 if Ga- James Cameron would allow it, whose film Terminator 2 Judgment Day is often known as T2. Uh, the cast later explained that the title was the one they thought the characters in the movie would have chosen just so they could annoy Cameron. Since Terminator 2 isn't legally known as T2, Boyle could use the title without permission. However, he settled for T2 train spotting because the internet search term T2 still showed up with Terminator 2. So, good on you, Danny Boyle. Good choice. I thought that was going to be Josh's couch gag, by the way, that he watched Terminator 2. Ah, too obvious. Had to go for the poop joke. <laughs> Uh, Johnny Lee Miller offered to shave his head to look older, but Danny Boyle insisted that Sick Boy retain his iconic blonde hair, which I'm kind of glad he did. Good Good call. A little thinner, but yeah. Yeah. And uh, Robert Carlyle kept away from his family in Glasgow while filming because he became so much like Begbie. Jesus. That's doing this. And that's the thing is like in a lot of the movies that you see him in and that stuff, he seems in the interviews and things, he seems like a very genuine, cool guy. Pretty much the opposite of Begbie. <laughs> yes. So. From the beginning, you see, like, the care, attention to detail. They didn't even call him out, but you could tell exactly which one of the little kids uh, was uh, Tommy. 
Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Every you could tell which one was every single one of them. You didn't need they didn't need to to label them at all. Yeah, no, the setups and the cinematography just completely did it. Especially like in the one scene where uh, Begbie has um, uh, crap Brenton trapped in the mirrored room. And it shows it from above, and you get that flash of the two kids as he's yeah. talking about being sat next to uh, next to Begbie uh, when he um, when they first met in school. Um, the only thing I kind of feel cheated in watching these so close together because I did not get to participate in the conversation about whether or not Renton went back, whether or not Renton. You know, what happened to Renton afterwards? You guys have had literally two decades to think about what, what happened to Renton after he stole the money, and I only had a day. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I personally always assumed that um, Begbie hunted him down and killed him. Just really? Wow, that's dark. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I always assumed, just because, I mean, I, knowing the kind of character that Begbie was, you know, and you don't fuck with him, I, I figured, like, what, as soon as he got paroled, he would be gone. Uh, but Begbie's not the smartest crayon in the drawer, so yeah, to hunt him down would would be too difficult for him. I don't think he wants to leave where he's from. I mean, I think he's too comfortable being a shite in that area than he would be if he had to go leave and track some. I think it's too much work for him. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think it's too much work for him. I think it's just too frightening for him. He's in that area. He's he is king. Everybody's afraid of Begbie. Why would he go anywhere else? Well, and he went on the lamb to London for a bit in the first movie, and that didn't actually work out well, very well for him. Mm-hmm. So again, Mike's point is uh, shored up there a bit. Yeah. Uh, Begbie in particular hits one of the things, like if the first one was about heroin, this film like really hits a li- almost a little too close to home for me. This this one is about like getting older and dealing with the mistakes in your past and asking the question, can you ever really go home again? Or as Sick Boy said, do you just become a tourist in your own childhood? That was such a great line. That was such a great scene too. I mean, when they're all going back there to play uh to pay respects for Tommy. And he's just like, he wants nothing to do with it. He's like, this is all posturing. You know, you're only doing this to make yourself feel better. You're not doing this to honor Tommy. Although I think Spud was. (laughs) Spud. Okay. I I will tell you in all the movies, I love thriller movies. I love movies that keep you on the edge of your seat. I was no more on the edge of my seat on this one. When uh, Begbie had Spud cornered in his apartment. It was making him read his stories to him. I was like, this is it. This is this is where Spud dies. I was, I was tense the entire last third of the film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, with, when you know that Begbie's out and you don't know where he is, I had a little bit of an inkling part, like in the third act of Begbie dying from a um, uh, uh, ED... <laughs> pill uh overdose i was viagra. expecting him yeah i was expecting him to have a viagra overdose um but the the twisting that's going on in this because you've got um you've got sick boy who is trying to you know he he wants this revenge on renton and you know this, you know, he's he's openly sped this, said this to Veronica, this, I'm going to bring him back and then I'm going to destroy him. And then Begbie shows up and he tells Begbie that he's in, um, where is he? 
Amsterdam. Amsterdam. So yeah, now I he's think in- by that point he had fallen back into his friendship legitimately. I don't know. I mean, I kind of thought at that point my my idea was that Sick Boy was telling him that he, just so he didn't go nuts. So I need you to lay low, and we're gonna go and get him. We're gonna go to Amsterdam and get him soon. So you just keep a low profile and don't get in the way. Trying to keep him in his back pocket type of thing, and then be like, "Hey, check it out. Renton's here," and then he can go get him. You know, like kind of getting getting yeah, him all I, I worked think, up I think for he's it. Still planning on getting him. I don't think he's falling into the friendship. I think he's just planning on maybe using Begby when he wants to use him to to crush. Right, huh. like a blunt object. See, yeah. my my read is that he is back, like they were kids again from the moment they do the hilarious "No More Catholics" song. That scene was amazing. That it was, was pretty funny. completely ridiculous, and the whole idea that they all would have the same date as their pin on their uh, their cards was in a very clever, very hey, clever move. Midnight, let's start again. Do it again. <laughs> Well, and you want to talk about like a brilliant scene, the scene in the club in the bathroom when he drops the Viagra under the toilet. Yes. And there's so much going on in the club. The fact that they are at the Queen Revival Radio Gaga show, reinforcing the like obsession with nostalgia and getting older. Mm -hmm. And then you cut to that scene where the two of them are doing this interplay without at first realizing who each other are. But that realization on both of their faces yeah, at yeah, different times. Them, yeah, neither one of them realizes until they stop talking. That that moment, I was just like, "Oh my god!" That was just it was just a very well done sequence. Yeah, well shot and well acted. Well, and what's interesting is that even though he took all that Viagra, which uh, for all I, for all by, by all counts, I mean, at, at some point he would have gotten an erection, but he didn't get the erection until he was. It, Doing what he loved, which was violence. Yeah, right. Yeah, that was a nice touch. I I kept thinking, as much as they were building that up, I kept thinking that it was going, it was going to lead to like some kind of, especially with him bringing the knife out and he kept repeatedly using the knife. I thought someone was going to, I thought he was going to die when somebody ended up taking the knife from him, and they would stab him and he would bleed out because you know Viagra, you know, it makes your blood thinner. So I thought they were going to actually like tie it in somehow, but they never really did. No, I think it was more about th- this guy who's got this toxic masculinity as his whole identity, finding he finally gets out and can't get it up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, even with the pills that are supposed to uh, help him do that, he can't. It, that just almost seemed like almost too, uh, not, I don't want to say cheap, but just too easy. You know, I, I thought I would try to put too many layers in it, maybe. And I'm curious to get to the end of this to see what you guys thought, because I... I wasn't sure which way this was going to go, but um, I, you know, with the whole thing with Renton and my, my theory that of him being good at heart, the only thing that kind of punches holes in that with this is when he sleeps with Veronica. Although I don't know that that is a very damning thing, but cause it, clearly sick boy thought more of the relationship than she did. Yeah. She made it very clear that she wasn't, you know, nearly as into sick boy as he was. He was her. Right. right. But that's the thing is rent just, even when he's trying to make good, he's fucking over his friends. Yeah, of course. I mean, and, and his, his whole intention is probably, you know, to, you know, to steal her away and fuck him over yet again. You know, 
And at first, he just wants to drop 4,000 pounds on Sick Boy and uh, uh, say hello to Spud and just be done with all of it because he doesn't give a shit about Bigby. Right. Mm-hmm. Which, again, that's another thing that comes back several times throughout this, the film is the, the, the whole thing about you can't just give us back 20 years of our lives because that, that moment defined kind of which direction they headed for the rest of their lives, which, granted, if they would have had 4,000 pounds each or whatever, I mean, they probably would have just shoved it in their veins anyway. But Like poor Spud. His life is ruined because he forgot about daylight savings. Oh, my God. How, how very Spud was that? Like. I, I Spud is the tragedy through the entire both movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like he has no control over his life, and everything that he does is directed either by the other three guys or situations that are almost beyond his control. And he's really, though, by the end of it, the only one that actually takes uh, a responsibility for his own actions when he has the opportunity to get money and you know do the same thing again. He says, "No, I can't handle that." Yeah. And he well, ends up becoming the author of the train spotting first book. Yeah, right. Which I thought I thought that was a, a nice way of giving him his his just desserts. That after putting up with all that for twenty years, plus, um, ultimately he turns it into something positive. That then we assume is going to be something that that does good for him. You know, maybe gets him back together with Moaning Myrtle and his reestablishes a relationship with his son and you know, maybe gives him some notoriety. I mean, I, w- I wonder if all along Irvin Welsh intended for Spud to be him. I don't know, but I think well, it's pretty clear. He gets back with Gail. Oh, well, Irvine Welsh was in the first movie. Who did he play? He was the, he was the, the weird creepy guy that popped up occasionally, uh, that lived in the, the, the apartment that had the bed on the floor that gave, um, the pill or the, uh, suppositories. Oh, okay. Oh. Okay. That was Irvine Welsh. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> Fun fact. Probably, probably good thing to me. I might as well have stuck him up my ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, going back to Spud in the apartment, what about the sequence where he's reading the story and Begby's like, you better not be talking about me and your stories or whatever, and he gets to that line, and he's he, he's like, oh, shit. And then, I plan on deleting this. <laughs> right, and then Bigby realizes what the story is and wants him to read, and you can see he's just getting off on reliving that whole... Mm-hmm. fiasco oh yeah he loves hearing stories about himself right up to the point where he realizes that spud got a portion of the money that was stolen and knew what was happening as it was happening which yeah. i hate that scene that scene always tears my heart out at the end of the first one when he shakes his head and is is in tears basically yeah where he's looking on the ground right before he walks out yeah because he's looking at him he's like i know you know i'm not a strong enough person to call out and stop you but he's like, please don't do this anyway. <laughs> right. That's what part of the ending of the first one is like Spud. He's not strong enough to stop him, but he's not strong enough to go with him either. Right. And he knows the situation that rent is putting him in. Either he speaks up and uh, rent gets killed by Bigby right there in the room, mm-hmm. or he keeps his mouth shut and lets rent betray them all. It's and a shitty thousand pounds as far as he knows. Yeah. And he gets stuck behind with them. And I think the the whole idea of Renton being like, you know, Spud, I left you for four grand. And he and Spud's like, what do you think I did with it? I was a junkie. I'm a junkie. What do you, I mean, you left me $4,000. 
do you think I'm, I, you know, you went on, changed your life. What, what are you expecting of me? He's like, there was that, it seems like everybody that he, well, obviously for good reason, everybody he encounters has that burst of anger, even from Spud, who was at the, the end of his rope and killing himself when he sees him, you know, cause he's, his had that amazingly shitty day where he forgot about, you know, daylight savings time. Oh, oh my God. How great was that line? He's like, you fucked up my life and now you fucked up my death. Yeah. Yeah. Very deep for Spud. <laughs> Overall, I, I may be betraying my feelings about this, but like it may not have been as raw as the first one. So maybe like on paper, not as great a piece of cinema. This was certainly funnier and in some scenes more poignant than the original. Well, I mean, less raw. I mean, that kind of describes the transition of time. I mean, 20, we're not as sharp as we were 20 years ago. But I mean that that's also one of the things that they they were showing in the opening when you and McGregor go uh, when uh, Renton goes back to Edinburgh they make a point of showing how everything has brightened up and changed and gotten better you know and you know the speech he gave in the first movie about how you know Scotland is shit is you know things are turning around because I mean even people from you know uh, what was it Croatia were greeting people at the door and they had modern technology and they had all this other stuff going on. So and he walks by all the Starbucks and whatnot, all the, the chain stores. Mm-hmm. And he missed it all. Not only did things get better, but they also got more pedestrian, more suburban. It was both like better than he could have thought and worse than he could have ever imagined at the same time. But yet most of the time that he spent in, in the places he spent there, there's all of that urban, like where they've torn down the buildings, just resting there kind of as a as a um urban rubble yeah but i mean it's 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 almost used as a uh, i don't know metaphor is the right word i'm looking for but you know for what was sure like fossils left over from the life that he had before he left right Mm -hmm. it's it's there but it's not what it was it's in ruin just like his friendships were that he was trying to make right but maybe not in the right way and then, of course, there's a bit about when he tells him that his life isn't what he made it out to be. Um, you know, because you, you imagine he did good and he he had the two kids and he had the wife and he was living the perfect life. But the reality was his life had kind of fallen apart, too. Yeah. yeah. And just like he'd always been, he's still a fuck up. He's just a little less of a fuck up than the rest of his friends. Mm-hmm. And he had the boost of 16,000 pounds that they didn't have. Well. 12,000, that's right. Four he gave to Spud. Now, what about the scene where they're pitching the uh, the idea to the, the planning board or whatever it was? That was pretty clever. It's just the, a, whole, the whole betrayal that, you know, uh, Victoria ended up taking... Veronica. The, Veronica ended up taking the whole amount anyway from him. Well, yeah, in a lot of ways, the, the, the story is, is, is retold, but... Um, you kind of see the charisma of, of Renton as sick boys just sitting there kind of idly on occasionally putting in his hype man, you know, yeah, boy, that kind of thing <laughs> as Renton's pitching the idea. And his, his biggie. Right. <laughs> and I don't think even though it was a betrayal, any of them is super mad at Veronica. It's no. almost kind of like a, this is how this happens. And you know what? Good on her. <laughs> I like it when Renton's all like, yeah, I think that's her way of saying goodbye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh the the scene where Bigby's chasing Renton around the the tavern 
is pretty freaking crazy with the whole transition between uh, Renton discuss trying to get sympathy from Bigby on uh, talking about the first time they met when they were in school. And then, you know, where you, where he falls out of the, out of the roof and winds up with the cable strapped around his neck. And you're like, Oh, this is going to be, this is the point where he comes in. He, you know, he's going to save him. He's going to, yeah. It's like, it, it, his, his true colors are going to come through and he's going to save his friend. No, he's not. Nope. <laughs> I was sure Rent was going to die in that scene. I was I, thinking so too. Yeah, I really did. I thought, I thought, okay, well, this is how this story ends. Yeah. I mean, and it kind of would go opposite of the first one. You know, the guy who tried to get away winds up getting taken down by the by the situation and everything going on around him. Uh, but <laughs> the holy shit, uh, Spud hitting him with the toilet. Yeah, <laughs> those things are those things are fucking heavy. I yeah. thought, like first off, Spud, good on you that you can lift toilet like that. Right? I mean, that's, that's a giant <laughs> ceramic bowl. I mean, that I mean, that's, you you could do enough damage with just a toilet lid, but a whole toilet, man. <laughs> No wonder, no wonder it knocked him out. Well, that whole climax of the movie is like the only time Spud takes any initiative. He decides to be a hero to his friends. Mm-hmm. Well, and that 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 scene again, another heartbreaking moment for me is when Begbie is walking by him in the in the the pub to chase Renton upstairs, and Spud falls to his knees in a praying position. Yeah, I, I I swear to God, I feel like him. I that that like Renton. No, like Spud. Like I, Spud. I, just, oh. I know where he's coming from. Uh, it's All just, right, so so let's let's have that discussion then. Who is who? We already had that discussion. We did. Really. Well, uh, yeah. there wasn't consensus. I said who I thought everyone was. I mean, my my case for being sick boy is basically talks too much, not nearly as clever as he thinks he is. And um, frosted tips. Yes, yes, I'm known for my frosted tips. <laughs> They're delicious. Well, and and you know a lot about James Bond, so. Oh yeah, there's that. <laughs> Sean Connery, maybe. Well, I, I mean, I, I still, I. Joel, I, you there's identify. There's a question that I'm spud. I, I, I don't <laughs> no, think anyone's going to argue with that one. No, yeah, that's, that's the big consensus, of course. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's an argument there. Um, I don't know. I I don't know who I would say I am. I guess I guess Begbie. I mean, uh, I guess it makes sense. You don't I, have, but hmm. you don't got the anger issues. You're uh, not you're not knifing anybody. No, I, I keep that all very nicely padded down. I mean, the thing <laughs> is, is if we're expanding it to the whole early crew, you're probably most like Tommy. Yeah. Holy shit! That got dark. Well, no, I mean, not the the AIDS and death thing, but the, like, started out sporty, started out clean, and then guy got into drugs. And and is probably the first to die. So, yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't say it. I've said it many times. That's not the first time I've discussed that. Yeah, fuck you all. I'm the dark horse here. I'm going first or last. If, yeah, if I don't kill myself, <laughs> Mike's probably going to have a stress heart attack. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to write a book about it all. <laughs> he's just he's just waiting for the climax, and then he's going to publish. <laughs> you yep. dick. Joel's like, I'm just in this for the book. Dead heroin or baby? <laughs> Dead heroin and babies. <laughs> wow. Dead heroin and babies. Yes. Well, there's episode eight, nine, and ten. <laughs> yeah, right, there so- were some twist the knife moments with regards to getting older though i don't know if anyone else experienced that considering yes. that's part of what this show is about well mm-hmm. they're they're not that far out well 
I mean, uh, Renton says he's 46, which, I mean, he was, he was born in, I mean, Ewan McGregor was born in 71, I believe, if I remember correctly. Because I looked it up because I was like, I know they're pretty close to our ages, but I didn't know how close. And and that makes sense because if they were 23 in 96 and most of us were just a few years younger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was born in 72, just like Mike. Yep. 45 next month. Or this, oh God, this month. And I mean, think about it. When we saw it, you know, we were about, again, we're close, very close in age. It's been 20 years. We're still obviously very close in age because that's how time works. But does um, it? (laughs) After last week, I don't know. I don't know. It's daylight savings time. Fuck me over so many times. Um, It it, it was for that reason, watching it, it, it was interesting to kind of, see those moments that, that you were alluding to. And yes, I had, I had those moments where I had those same feelings. Where was I when I saw this film 20 years ago in the theater versus now? Yeah. And the, I think the, one of the nods to getting older is a whole scene where Renton and sick boy are going on about that soccer game, going about the greatest footballer that ever lived. And uh, Veronica is talking to them in Slavic. And she's just like, you two are like an old married couple. They have no idea what she's saying. You know, you, you just should just screw, you know, that's like, and they're toasting her, you know, it's, it's this jumping back and reliving, uh, you know, reliving your glory days, which comes well, back. I mean, when we get together, how often do we tell the same stories over and over again? Oh yeah. Yeah. And that, and that just comes with the territory. I mean, we get back together or, you know, we haven't seen each other face to face in six months to a year, you know, I think that is just part of uh, keeping a friendship and keeping a connection going, you know, get together with friends. This is, remember this, this is a part of, this is part of the reason why we, you know, we are so tight because we all wound up getting chased across campus for ABC, you know, whatever. Um, You know, that's the, that's kind of the, uh, the reasoning for that reminiscing in there. And I'm certain in our darker moments, we have those same sorts of what the fuck have I done feelings. But at the same time, we also have pushed forward and we're doing something different and we are not just wallowing in what was in the past. That's that's something that's different than some people that that get to that point where they just end up staying with those old stories and don't seem to move forward. That's a very spud perspective on the whole thing, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, we are. I mean, we are. Oh, we We're doing things now. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> There's no so twelve and eleven. Uh, no, but I mean, we we we're actually doing something, and we're we're putting something else out there, and we're moving forward, and we are not just dwelling in the past. But then the next time we get together, we talk about the year before. <laughs> so I don't know. 50, yeah. 50, I don't know. So uh, well, in case we still like- we still manage, you know, all the time to make new memories too. So I mean, exactly. That's what I was yeah. going for. And I do my I, best to drink those away. Yeah. <laughs> if you're enjoying this conversation, you should check out the beer show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so let's let's just toss it around here. Are you know, uh, is this another one of those cases where we have four thumbs up across both then and now? Sounds like it. Yeah. I think so. Well, Next I know there was a lot of apprehension when we talked about doing the show, especially with with uh pat and josh who i mean I, I love this film but i'm all for seeing what comes next and uh and taking on the the task of watching something that's so beloved 
kind of be revisited. And I was worried as I was watching it because I'm like, I'm enjoying this, but I'm wondering what the other guys are thinking. That's what I kept thinking through the whole film. The the one the one spot that um that, that rung sour for me was when uh Renton was at dinner with uh, uh Veronica. And you know, he did you know, he basically kind of did a reprise of the, the choose life speech. And it just mm-hmm. it, it it was going along okay and it's and it was doing you know, it sounded fine, but it just it didn't really really ring as true because for one I mean, this, the first one was like a, like a, felt like a, a, a speech kind of thing, like a, a pre-written whatever. And this one was supposed to be like off the cuff. He's just ex- describing how they would use it. And he, but it just manages to still sound just as well rehearsed as the other one. So it, it, it felt, it rung kind of false in that way to me. And also just at the fact that at the end of it, he did what we've, what Josh and I have discussed before that we don't like in these kinds of movies where you paid disservice to the original because like I said, that was one of my favorite movie openings ever. And he just kind of, you know, almost like shits on it. Hmm. Well, he doesn't really shit on it. I mean, he, he flashes back to it while he's doing the new rant. You know, he's, he's doing right, the new rant on Facebook and all that. Done. Like, I can't remember the exact comment he makes, but he's, he's like, but anyway, we thought it was, you know, we thought it was something cool back then, you know, and, but, you know, he just kind of brushes it off. Like, but, you know, now I know it was just a bunch of bullshit. But well, see, you're, you're not looking at it as you're looking at it as a third party observer. He's looking at it as, yeah, it seemed really awesome. And then as he's doing that rant, it comes back to him and realizes it was really shitty back then. Yeah. And I think the fact that it goes on a little too long and gets a little threadbare at the end is a conscious choice by Danny Boyle. It's like, I was so fired up about this when I was 22, but now now I'm doing it again and it's starting to sound kind of lame. Yeah. And kind of just trite and petty almost. Okay. Well, the, and the other big throwback, and we should also should also mention uh, uh, Kelly McDonald's, a bit as a the bit lawyer cameo, basically I, I thought that was that was a nice ca- uh, choice of her being a lawyer but the the scene where he's being chased by bigby and he gets falls off the car and he puts his hands on the hood and smiles like in the beginning of yeah the first one i thought that was a nice touch but i, I wondered what you guys thought because I, I for me it felt like he was remembering that moment and kind of reliving it and be like okay this is like the good old days but was it Kind of I, I, thought, I thought they did it. They handled it well because if, if they had done another thing where, like, at the very end, he would like make some kind of gesture to be like whatever and walk off, you know, I think it would have ruined it. But you know, just yeah. like you said, it, you know, it was almost like you know, in his head, he was remembering it. You know, when Diane at, at their parting uh, told Rent, "She's too young for you." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Considering that she slept with him when she was probably supposed to be fourteen or fifteen. <laughs> Yeah, that was a that was a funny line. Yeah, but <laughs> well, she hands him the card. Here's my rates. He's like, "That's reasonable." She's like, "That's per hour." <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I don't think the sequel was as good as the original, but I think it was the best possible film they could have made. And I mm-hmm. thought it was a good continuation of the story, to, you know, from the first one. Well, and everybody was involved, right down to the screenwriter. I mean, everybody that was handling the original film that was part of it was back again in some form or another. Even, you know, the the flashback sequences with Tommy. I mean, everybody was there and the heroin baby. 
Oh yeah, and they managed to work in some scenes from the novel that weren't that didn't make it into the original oh, train spotting. Right, like the the scene with uh, Begbie's dad. Yep, which actually tells you what where they even got train spotting from. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, I, I, I'm, actually, I'm amazed we haven't brought that up. That where the term train spotting comes from. You guys know that, right? That's like a British hobby thing. Yeah, oh, people, people standing on the side of the trains, watching them go by. Yeah, and, and just recording like which trains go by, and like you know, it's like a it's like it's a it's a whole subculture of people in England where like certain trains only run you know certain times, and they're, they're very rarely ever seen certain train numbers. Mm-hmm. So it's like a big deal if you have seen like train number fourteen oh eight or whatever, blah blah blah. You know? Yeah, train spotting is an actual hobby. Well, it's 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 kind of a thing out here too. Really? And, oh yeah, I've talked to talked to the conductors on some of the on the trains that I've been on for. I mean, just on my commute, and they're like, "Yeah, late night, people are trying to get these awesome shots of the train coming down the line and that sort of thing." You know, where the uh, engineer will turn, they'll come around the turn, and there'll be like a tripod with a video camera sitting there right in the middle of the tracks, and some asshole that's like gonna, hoping to pull it out of the way at the last second type of thing. Um, they're not very smart people. <laughs> Well, I mean, the, the thing is, in in a battle with a train, the train will always win. Mm-hmm. I thought I, it was something else. The the the, and I'm reading some pages right now because I thought it had a different meaning. But on this one side, I'm looking on now, which happens to be Reddit, by the way. Um, it says the title is a cleverly a clever double entendre pulled from Irvine Welsh's book. Train spotting is a colloquial 80s British term that means being obsessed with one any one trivial topic, whether it's drugs, football, or Sean Connery movies. Hmm. Which would make sense that they're not only referencing that specifically, but the heroin is their their one trivial topic. Well, and that's the thing, is this wino is like, what are you doing down here? Train spotting. And that was such kind of an important scene in the book, and I love the fact that they got it into the sequel because I haven't read the book, but I knew about that scene. But and was it oh sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say and Robert Carlyle played his father also. Yeah. Okay, so so it was a new scene. I thought they had, had a deleted scene from the original film that they had segued into it. I I think one of the things about the book from what I've read in the differences, and maybe Pat can back me up with his vague memories of the book, is that uh, the book was a bunch of vignettes, much like what Spud was writing, but there wasn't one coherent narrative. So many of the changes to the first film were, okay, we have to provide context so this has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. Well, like, like I said, you know, uh, it, it's, you know, the chapters are all very short, you know, because it, it is little like ramblings of a, of a heroin addict. Not unlike Naked Lunch, which I've read the book and seen the film. Same sort so of thing. Kind of badass. Some of the chapters, some of the chapters are a little more coherent than others, and some of them are just a little more. Uh, you got you got to kind of read it a couple times to really get what it's saying and stuff. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's one of the most interesting books I ever read. Well, and I'm not sure that they didn't segue some of the actual original sequences in with the film, like uh, when they're running by in the original the opening scene that they replay out when he's walking down the street and they run behind him. You know, I don't know if that was recreated or that was original footage that they blended somehow. But oh, there was a lot of original footage reused in this. Sure. Well, like like the baby and and Tommy and and things like that. But some of the other stuff that was intercut and woven in with the story that wasn't a separate shot. I don't know. It was very well done the way that they did that. 
So yeah, I think I think eight thumbs up. Yep. Yeah, excellent. All right, so Joel, what do we have on tap for next week? Mm, I'm ready for some snacks. Nope, that was last week. No, I mean I'm hungry. Oh, uh, no! The next week we're doing the Magnificent Seven. <laughs> Way to go, Spud! <laughs> Shut up. All right, if you want to talk to us about uh, your favorite parts <laughs> of uh, Train Spotting or Train Spotting Two, maybe you think we're way off or we missed your favorite scene, you can always give us a call at seven zero eight now wrap. That's seven zero eight six six nine nine seven two seven. Yep. And if you want to email us, you can get us at 40go14 at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter with the same handle. And if you're looking for our older stuff, again, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podverse FM, Noon FM, and don't forget to review us on, uh, you know, review us on iTunes and Podcatcher. Let people know about us. We always appreciate it. Podchaser. That too. I keep doing that too. God damn it. All um, right. So we will uh, going to get our cowboy on for next week and we will talk to you then. We made it to episode 13. Ow. Shit. I thought that was a twist off. (laughs) (laughs) Turned out it was a can. (laughs) (laughs) A hell of a drug. No, it's a rotisserie chicken. (laughs) You can twist those off.